we would be honored if you would join all right everyone welcome to another episode of dungeon crawlers where we are here all three of us alton krebs and daniel here to talk to you about some some interesting things mainly those magical things in your games movies books whatever you know what is it about magic that we all love what is it that we hate and what is it that we just want to throw out we're going to talk about that today because there are some times when magic is a giant pain in our derriere especially when you know you have a player at the table that decides to use a spell in a way that you did not uh imagine or not only that, they used a spell that just is so confusing, you're just like, no, no, that doesn't work. I'm sorry. But we're here to talk about that. But before we jump into our topic at hand, because of our new wonderful format, we have some news to throw around. So I'm going to go first, and then we'll, we'll, we'll spin around. Oh, heck yes. Here yes. we go, Daniel. I mean, basically, I, I, mine is going to be very quick. Uh, the news is, for my portion, because I cover books, is really... Uh, some great books out there that are being converted into movies this year that you should be aware of and take a look at. If you already haven't seen Agatha, Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile, you should. It was super good. Amazing. So good. Um, I very much enjoyed it. Had a great cast. Um, that is one you should check out. Uh, besides that, there's also uh, the soon to be coming movie Deep Water, The Stars at Noon conversations with friends and one that i'm also really looking forward to is where the crawdads sing um that looks like a great movie so those are some potential books uh, slash movies to go check out and that's my news awesome cool. alton take it away yeah over in the world of gaming i've just got a couple of short items um first uh there's a blade runner rpg that's coming to kickstarter the rumor is that that's going to be coming on may 3rd um, so for those of you who want some of that cyberpunky dark noir future feel, uh, hopefully it'll be pretty good. It looks like it's getting a lot of hype. Um, the question whenever I see Kickstarters like this that are being hyped ahead of time is what percentage of it is actually community excitement and what percentage of it is people being paid to say that they're excited. Uh, <laughs> we are not currently being paid to say that we're excited, but uh, at the very least, it piques my interest and I'm hopeful for it. I, um, I'm curious about that one too, because Blade Runner is a great like environment. It's a great IP. So I'm really curious how this is going to roll. Oh yeah. Well, and if you want some really cool cyberpunky dice, make sure to go check out dieharddice.com. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. There's my plug. Cyberpunk is is a definitely it's 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 a niche uh, market. I mean, it's those that love it love it, and those that don't know about it, kind of like what the heck is this and. It's always been one that's really been a hard sell. You know, like steampunk, a lot of people are into steampunk and they get behind that. But uh, it seems like cyberpunk, it's it's just a really hard sell. I, I see it as like, I see it as like a rolling wave of trend, right? Because in the 80s, cyberpunk was everywhere and it was explosive. I mean, that's when, that's when yeah. the game cyberpunk actually came out. That's when Shadowrun came out. You know, like we, we you, Blade Runner, the first, you know, the first Blade Runner film, cyberpunk was its own thing and it yeah. was explosive and it kind of like you get into the 90s 90s was all about vampires and werewolves you get to the 2000s and then we start kind of like we got into the site into the steampunk and diesel punk yeah. and now cyberpunk is making its way back again so i think it's just like rolling trend yeah i mean i hope so i mean i, I do hope so you know uh 
a great movie that I enjoyed. Uh, Johnny Mnemonic was definitely a cyberpunk type movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. But the and and as is typical of like aging sci-fi IPs, uh, it did not age well, right? Mm-hmm. But but that's okay. <laughs> We're sitting here with terabytes on yeah. micro SD cards, and yes. he has to like clear his memories out for like 4K of space. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my big hope with this, the reason that I'm not willing to just completely throw it out, I'm interested to see what's going on, is um, the uh, the uh, one of the lead groups on it is Free League, who's um, Simon Stalinhog, I think is how you pronounce his name. But he did like Coriolis and Tales from the Loop, and I'm pretty sure that he helped with the One Ring second edition um but uh anyway so there's there's some history there that leads me to believe that at the very least it's not going to be awful um but it could be very very good so keep your eyes on that um the other uh two things i have is final fantasy or final fantasy good grief fantasy flight (laughs) games announced a new starter set for star wars legion for the shadow collective um so that's going to be some fun stuff um it's uh it's always exciting to see a little bit more support coming for star wars legion um it's really kind of a slick tabletop game definitely not perfect but no game is um but uh you know you're gonna get like uh, the black sun enforcers and the pike syndicate and um there's a whole bunch of mandalorian commandos that are going to be in this like it's looking like it's going to be pretty hot so um, keep your eyes open for that. Uh, I don't think I wrote down a date, but it's coming soon. So go keep your eyes open. <laughs> yeah, um, Alton, let me, let me ask you this because you're the pro on this topic. So um, I I really love the the Fantasy Flight. Now I almost said Final Fantasy, by the way. The Final yeah. Fantasy Flight games um, for that that are app driven. You know, you've got Descent Second Edition. I thought was really really well done. Uh, and Journeys in Middle-Earth, and I think there's one called like Mansion of Madness or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these sort of like sprang off of their initial experience with Imperial Assault, mm-hmm. and they even took Imperial Assault, which was an asymmetric competitive game, uh, and they turned it into a cooperative game, but they, they like truncated the experience in the process. Do you think mm-hmm. that they'll revisit Imperial Assault? Do you think that they'll do like an Imperial Assault second edition? I I see it as possible. I don't know. Um, and here's why. In the Asmodee buyout, there's a whole bunch of reshuffling that happened in the way that their digital departments work. And some projects were automatically greenlit, but most weren't. Not all of them were explicitly canceled, but a lot of them just kind of got shuffled to the side um, in a state of we're going to have to have the right designers and the right resources at the right place in the right time. Um, Beyond that, we also know that they're, you know, revisiting the Star Wars role-playing game, um, which may see it transform a little. Again, my gut says Genesis, um, which still is based off of a lot of the things that were in the original Star Wars uh, Fantasy Flight RPGs. Um, and they took the same dice systems and applied them to these other games, yeah. right? So it's not outside the realm of possibility. Uh, I see it as... I put it at like a 60% probability. Um, but 
there's a lot happening in that world. A lot of Star Wars fans upset with new things that exist and Disney mm-hmm. getting funky of the about the way that they handle licenses and things like that. So um, I guess at the end of the day for me, if they're going to redo Imperial Assault or any of the other games, they're going to have to do it right. When they did X-Wing 2nd Edition, it got a lot of people really pissed off. Mm. Not because the updated rules were worse in fact it solved a lot of problems and it opened up a lot of design space um but the way that it was handled that transition was so clunky that people had to rebuy so much stuff and conversion kits and it and it just it wasn't that the game was bad it was the hassle of transitioning yeah it was very difficult and so if it's going to come back i think they're going to be very careful they're going to be very hesitant but they're going to make sure that it is a clear transition, a clear upgrade, or not at all. Sounds right. Um, so that's my opinion there. And then the third thing that I want to make sure to touch on that I really think is the biggest news of all of these three is Hasbro is once again walking back uh, <laughs> poor strategic decisions. Um, uh, Wizards of the Coast a few years ago started to rework the way that they did organized play, um, especially professional level play. And they did away with the Pro Tour, they did away with Grand Prix, and brought them back in a pseudo state of magic fests for a while, but it didn't really work and took away all of the, the paths to professional play, which funnily enough was one of the things that back in the beginning um, they before it was bought by Hasbro, that was one of the core things that got Magic into the main scene was that there was a clear path for you to go from your kitchen table all the way to being paid to fly around the world to play the game, right? Right. Um, And while definitely the game has evolved and the needs and the budgets and the things like that have to change, it felt like Wizards really just wanted everybody to switch to digital and so they turned it all off. they announced that they're bringing it back. They're bringing back the Pro oh. Tour. Um, and moreover, they are segmenting the way that they handle things so that it's done more by geographic region. Um, not perfectly. A whole bunch of uh, continents just kind of got like jumbled together in the and everybody else category. Um, but I'm interested to see what happens there. And hand in hand with that, we're seeing a refocus on um, how they handle their paper strategy. I think that they are hopefully waking up uh, and realizing that although you can get higher margins in these kind of quick cash grabby things, the long-term health of the game hurts. And it wasn't just the pandemic. Um, those numbers were starting to go down before the pandemic started. And now as more and more places are opening back up, paper players just haven't been returning. Um, and mm-hmm. new players have not been coming to the game. So hopefully they're going to do some rework. I still think that a game could exist in both the digital and paper space, but it's going to take more organization and effort than WotC has put forward up until this point. And I think that Hasbro, more than Hasbro is really willing to pay for. Um, but with the pro tours and coverage returning, we'll see what happens. At the very least for me, one of my passions, I think it's exciting to see there's a whole bunch of new players who want to explore this game more. And I still think that there's plenty of life in it. We just got to put it in front of people. So That's going to be fascinating to watch. Three. Yeah, we're going to have to keep our eyes on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do need to issue a minor alteration to something that I said on the show a few weeks ago. Ooh. Um, uh, when we recorded a few weeks ago, we were talking about how 
um, Avalon Hill was going to be branching off and going direct only. No, um, yes. I had received that news just a little while before I walked in to record the show from um, one of the buyers at my local game store. Um, and as I've gone to try to chase, chase down sources on it, um, I haven't been able to find the definitive thing that says they are only going direct. Um, and he hasn't been able to provide anything to me either. So I do issue a minor retraction on that. Nevertheless, I still stand by my opinion that if Watsi continues to engage in direct sales and cut out their game stores, they're going to find that their audience base continues to diminish. And thus far, um, I've not seen any proof positive from distributors saying that these things are coming to us, um, even though you can pre-order them on Hasbro's website right now. Right, right. So it's not a confirmed, it is a rumor. I want to make sure to be clear and concise as we're trying to report news, but um, keep your eyes peeled and I'm going to keep my ears to the ground too. If we can get more information, we'll let everybody know. Well, the good news is that rumor sparked an entire episode conversation last week. So not a bad thing. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, it's not like we are confirming it, but yeah, I mean, we were definitely, we gave the, you know, the pros and cons of what that would be. But so. that, that, that's a good move to, uh, on the retraction because uh, at, when you, when you gave the news, it sounded like it was a known fact and now we're discovering, well, it's not quite confirmed yet. So that's good to get that information out there. So thank yes. you very much for that. For now, my everybody news, do keep applying pressure, please. Like, yes, don't, please. don't give up on the pressure. Cause I think this is kind of ridiculous that they are pre-selling six, eight months before it comes out, but there still is no confirmed way for your LGS to get it. Yeah. That's messy. All right, well, news in my world of movies and games. Uh, so Ezra Miller, the actor who plays The Flash, and he plays a, an important character in the Fantastic Beast films, uh, apparently had some sort of massive public outburst at a karaoke bar, at least that's where it began. But it ended with him breaking into the room of a married couple and threatening both of them, after which he was arrested. So with this... Warner Brothers is now reconsidering all the projects in which he is involved. Now, yep. now, offline and maybe even a little bit here on the show, maybe you've heard us talk a little bit of, you know, about cancel culture, and I'm sure everybody has their opinions one way or the other. Um, this is one of those areas that's a little gray for me. On the one hand, I am definitely not for hyper cancel, but uh, I can also understand, you know, there need to be consequences for, for public behavior. And if you've got someone who's highly unstable, that's just a risk, not yeah. just to the IP, but to people with whom you work. It is a, it is a risk to have someone who is unpredictable, unstable, and, and potentially violent. Now, maybe we find out that there was a lot more alcohol than common sense involved. Maybe we find out that this was like an ongoing thing that brewed into a volcanic explosion. Who knows? But WB is now reconsidering their projects starring Ezra Miller. They do have the flash in the can. They're just doing some post work on that. Uh, and they're going to take some time to reconsider this. The good news is they've got at least a year before they have to make any real big decisions or pull any proverbial triggers. I think in that time, Ezra Miller will have the opportunity to kind of you know, go through his uh, Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears bell curve and come out the other side a little healthier, a little safer. So here's hoping because I don't know about you guys, but I think Ezra Miller is a phenomenal actor and he has done the flash some real good uh, as, a, as an actor. So I'm hoping that he gets whatever his personal affairs are in order and gets back into a self, uh, I'm sorry, a safe and healthy place. 
Uh, so big, big positive wishes over to Ezra Miller. I hope everything goes well. I mean, this, this is, this has kind of happened before. I mean, we've seen this before with Robert Downey Jr. Oh yeah. Major, you know, got addicted to alcohol, drugs, blew, blew his entire career apart. Um, he got some help. He got cleaned up and, you know, he, he made a comeback. It's not impossible. I mean, definitely his was a much longer period of time between, um, and we know who he is now and the success he is with, you know, being Tony Stark and everything else. Um, we've seen several other actors. And this is probably the, the problem is, you know, he went from nobody to someone pretty quickly um, because of some of the roles he was able to score. And, you know, that may have gone to his head. He has more, a lot more money that he's dealing with than he probably ever has in his life. And so sometimes I can see these things get in a oh, way yeah. more than likely oh, yeah. there's probably more alcohol than should have been involved in this situation it's still sad to see um i i am appreciative of the fact you know there is a year there's a year that he can clean himself up get things in order and they can still move forward the sad thing here is though is it if they decide not to go with him we're down to only two people from the the dc universe that they created that are officially superheroes now and that's wonder woman and aquaman and yeah. It's like, come on. That's all um, we need, really. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of excited for this Flash movie. Is If all the people that they have said are in this mo- film, as the characters they are, it could be very interesting to see. But, you know, so, because of this film, the, it opens up the possibility they could still do the Flash, but they just don't use him. Um, you know, there is rumors that Grant Gustav, Gustin? I can't remember how to pronounce his last name, that is playing The Flash on, on TV, TV, is going to be in this film where Ezra has shown up on one of the episodes. So maybe he takes over as being The Flash, which I think would be fantastic. He's done a great job. Um, well, you know what? Worst case scenario, and with a little bit of luck, we'll finally get the well-deserved Nicolas Cage Superman. <laughs> you know, um, there, is that, there is that new Nicolas Cage movie that's out where he's playing himself. And yeah. it looks hilarious. I'm looking forward I, to I can't that. wait to see that. Yeah. Uh, in and other news. That, oh, go ahead. Oh, I still have two more things. I'm sorry, guys. In mm-hmm. other news, uh, Ubisoft has announced that finally, <laughs> it, it's interesting. They've announced the end of dev, the end of development on Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint, meaning that the game that came out on October 1st, 2019, they just released a world patch that fixes several bugs that they knew about. Uh, that is the last patch. That is the last upgrade they're done with that game. What's interesting to me is that it's only been like two and a half years and it feels like it's been five. I don't know why it feels like it's been five. I I got this game at launch. I've played this game off and on over the last couple of years. And I swear I've had this game for way longer than just two and a half years, but they released the patch. And when that happened, my first, my first thought was, Oh, they're still patching that game. Then they immediately announced we're done patching this game. And I was like, Oh, Okay, and then they announce the next Ghost Recon game is in development. And I was like, ah, there we go. That makes a lot more sense. So Ghost Recon Breakpoint is as fixed as it's ever going to be, everybody. And then finally, uh, Unreal 5, the game engine. You know, Unreal's a game engine. They've made many, many games on top of this engine over the decades. Uh, Unreal 5, which is well known for its photorealism, 
has finally been officially released for production ready use, which means that now it's out of its like alpha and beta states. It is now at a state where uh, they have decided that Epic has decided this engine is ready for uh, commercial use. You can now use these for indie games, commercial games, doesn't matter. It's now out there and available. And one of my favorite aspects of Unreal 5 is that it is a completely free to use game engine. You, of course, can buy assets and you can buy other things that will improve your game development. But for those out there who are interested in game development on in the digital space, Unreal 5 is now available. There are cool demos out there. The Matrix Resurrections demo has been out for quite a while now, but that is a gorgeous demo game. That is, I mean, it's just a demo. It's just to show off Unreal 5 and it was used to promote the Matrix, but uh it is an exceptional and beautiful playable demo there's also a new game lyra l-y-r-a uh that is a new playable shooter demo that came out with this announcement that unreal 5 is now production ready and of course finally they also announced that a new tomb raider built on unreal 5 is in the works and coming our way and that is our nerd news we'll go cool all right well gents I think that means we should probably move on to our main topic today. Dan, you want to bring us in? All right. So our topic, basically magic. Not Magic the Gathering. We're going to leave that alone. That's going to be off to the side. But magic, how, how does it affect you? What is, what is it that you like, dislike, are annoyed by, hate, love, cherish, or just want to go, what the heck were they thinking when they designed this magic system? <laughs> um, you know, there are multiple games out there that have different magic systems. There are plenty of movies that have shown magic in its various ways. There are different books out there even that have magic systems in different ways. I mean, just look at Brandon Sanderson's uh, collection of works you have a different magic system for every world, which is interesting and amazing. But at the same time, if I were to put that into a role-playing game, that would drive me nuts, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. Even so, though one exists. Yes. Even though one exists. So that's, that's our topic. Magic. Yeah. This one's been a, a weird one for me. Uh, guys, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I am a huge fan of the Palladium line of RPGs. Really? Wait, what? Never knew that. Yeah, Alton, I don't know if you knew this. Uh, there's a company called Palladium, and they make a bunch of RPGs. I don't know if you knew that. But anyway, uh, so... That may not be how I met Josh. Or Craig. <laughs> uh, and I got to say, like, it, magic... I'm glad that you brought this topic up, because magic in that game has been a bit of a rub for me. Yeah. Uh, it, And it's it's a little hard to describe, but I'll do my best here. So... In that game, the idea is that your character maxes out at level 15 and they, they uh, sort of matriculate a bunch of, this, of the internal systems based on that 15 levels of progression, including magic. Magic has uh, a level cap of 15, and so you have spells that are dropped into levels, but you also have spells that are dropped into categories of magic so that you have, um, you have like Tengu magic and you have bubble magic. Yep, that's a thing. You have standard magic, you have uh, sort of like hidden or ancient lore, and like there's a bunch of different categories. And they've released, as many RPGs do, they've released multiple books on just the magic itself. But the part that gets me is that the system, in my opinion, is overcooked. You have spells by level, spells have a cost, depending on what 
gamut of level that they are in. I think it's like one through five, six through 10, and then 11 through 15 or something like that. Or it, it's a little bit different than that. It's not just like every five levels, but, um, but it, that determines how long it takes to cast the spell if you're casting the spell as an incantation, a spoken, a spoken spell. But if you want to enhance the power of the spell, you can perform it as a ritual. And the ritual takes significantly longer, requires, you know, not just more time, but sometimes more components or, or more elements, but it makes the spell stronger. In addition to that, your character level determines in part the spell strength. So now you're taking into account when you're in combat, when you're in combat, you have to figure out how long does this spell take? Are we doing it as an incantation or as a ritual? What is the spell strength based on incantation versus ritual plus character level involvement plus attribute bonuses because there are attribute bonuses that apply to spell strength. And then in many cases, but not in all cases, you have a saving throw by the recipient of the attack, right? By the target. Uh, and so, like, the system is just overcooked, despite having some really cool spells. There are some really cool spells in this game. So this this system is just overcooked. Have you have you guys encountered stuff like that before in some of your systems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's also like it's it's a problem that's endemic to most RPGs. Um, the uh, the way that I've talked about it is I've helped others as they're cooking spells and characters and even smaller portions of systems is that um, it's sometimes difficult to abstract the idea of an ethereal power that just does yeah. anything that you want, right? Um, and so the way that, that I often recommend people go is treat it like a currency. Um, it, you know, currencies realistically, and I don't want to get like deep into economical sciences or anything like that, right? But currencies fundamentally are going to be limited by one of three things, right? How much I can get, how much I can hold, and how much I can spend, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that same general principles is something that, that a lot of systems really struggle to uh, apply with their magics because if I can do anything and I can do it at range, and I can do it at this, in the same amount of time that it takes for me to swing a sword or knock an arrow or whatever, right? One of these two things will infinitely scale and the other won't. And even in a situation where you work in like a high fantasy setting, the only way that my melee attack is going to scale is if I go and get weapons with upgrades, those are gonna have to be magical upgrades anyway, which means that I need a spellcaster no matter what, like, like that magic system has to exist. Yes. Um, and that, that makes it very, very difficult, but it also makes it scale poorly. An excellent example is if you look at the way that magic items are generated in D&D um, 3.5, Pathfinder, even a little bit in 5th edition, right? You have these exponential gold costs that, that go up. Yeah. Get these magic items, if I want these enchantments on it, right? It's going to cost me literally hundreds of thousands of gold, which first kind of hurts the abstraction of how much is a gold piece actually worth, which is why players all the time will walk into a tavern and the GM says, oh yeah, it's 50 gold for a, for a flag and a veil. It's like, no, 50 gold is more than every person in this tavern is going to make in the next five years. Like, <laughs> comprehend that for a second and say, the average king's treasury maybe, maybe breaks 300,000 gold pieces. So if I'm expected to pay... 550,000 gold pieces for this magic item 
what does that say? What does that say about me as a player that imbalances the rest of the game on top of it? But at the same time, I got my wizard out here. He's just leveled up to 13, 14, 15. He's casting seventh, eighth, ninth level spells. He can create magic items on the fly. No, like that, that makes literal zero sense. Either your, your economy is out of whack or your economy of magic is out of whack. So then, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what we like about having magic in our games, right? Uh, one of the reasons we play games is uh, an, ex- an exploration of fantasy, escapism from reality, you know, things of those nature. So when we talk about magic, it's about fulfilling fantasy. It's about it's about reaching into power that we wish we had. It's about exploring what that feeling is like. Role-playing games are exceptional at getting you to vicariously, not even vicariously, but through the through the uh, function of imagination, we get to experience things we otherwise would not, at least to some degree. And so I think we love magic because it adds mysticism, literal and metaphoric, right? It adds mysticism and it adds, it adds power where some of us feel like we have none. So I think that, I think it's kind of easy to talk about what we like about magic and that it adds a new layer of strategy to, to a game. Uh, I like being able to use magic because you can sort of contort the rules of a problem, not the rules of the game, but the rules of a problem so that you can solve it in a way that might be unexpected, or maybe it's the only way to to solve that problem. What have been some of your favorite things about incorporating magic into your games? Yeah, so... um... The, the ways that I personally like to use magic is that it's, it's got to be much more tied to characters and character growth. Um, one of the things is I've worked on some of my private projects is I'm abstracting the way that classes work for that exact reason. Um, because like putting yourself into this, into this little box, but then giving you this huge toolbox to work with um, kind of feels a little weird. And it also ends up creating situations where you accidentally break things or you cross class and the requirements really aren't there, right? Um, the same way that, we, that I was talking kind of about the economies of magic, not just mm-hmm. in terms of the actual monetary, but like, what does it take to cast this spell? Yeah. What does it take to enchant this item? One of the places that I look for for deep inspiration um, that I think does it really well is Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh yeah. Um, the, the, the cartoon show. Um, because those elements are, are powerful, they are innate, okay? And there is a clear divide between the people who can bend and the people who can't. But beyond that, the technique within each element is dramatically different, which is one of the things that makes being the avatar so unique, but also so difficult. And following the way that um, Aang in, in original series and then, um, uh, oh, shoot. Uh, Korra. Thank Korra. you. My brain kept saying Katara. I'm like, that's not right. I know. I almost um, went there too. <laughs> that, that, you know, Korra had to go and learn her bending. It makes it very apparent and evident that, like, there's real training, there's real effort and spiritual balance and concentration that has to come in. There has to be some fiber, um, not always necessarily moral fiber, but there's got to be something real inside the person who is trying mm-hmm. to make this happen. Um, but beyond that, there are real benefits and limits that exist in the way that those benders interact with the world and the way that the spiritual world and, those, and the physical world are connected. Um, and what you end up with is a very 
elegant and easy to understand magic system that has clear advantages and limitations, but that also most notably does not put a real cap on what an individual is going to be able to figure out how to do something with those powers, with that magic. Um, and that's a system that I think does it really well. It looks like you had a thought there, Dan. No, I mean, I agree. It's, it is a really well-balanced uh, magical system. You know? Those that don't have it can still defeat someone that are a bender. You know, um, it's really easy to fight someone that is a firebender, just to have a bucket of water sometimes, um, you know, so there is a balance. Then you get the avatar, which is, has the ability to use all five or four, excuse me, mm-hmm. unless you throw in blood bending. Uh, well, no, that's water bending. bending. Yeah. And then spirit bending. So there's other ones, but still, yeah, it's a little funky, but even though, you know, we watched that Aang still struggled. He had self-doubt. He wasn't in harmony with himself, so his bending wasn't what it could have been um, mm-hmm. until he finally accepted that. He accepted the fact that he ran away. He accepted the fact that he didn't take on that mantle. So I really like that, that there are all these other factors uh, that played into him being able to be this all-powerful magic user in that universe. Mm-hmm. Um, because Go ahead. Just splitting off of that really quick, and even Korra, right she she mastered the basics of the elements very quickly she was very naturally gifted which is mm-hmm. something that i think you should have in a good magic system yeah. is people who just can do it and that's great but once it came to the the technique the finesse the more advanced things and how do we manage this in the world of spirits then there was an area where ang probably would have just picked it up and run away with it and she had to come and learn those things too yeah yeah it was really about character development as opposed to technique development yeah, but at the same time, you know, when we're, we're I, I sometimes feel like magic is a MacGuffin. It's kind of a MacGuffin that's thrown in there to, to help either advance the storyline or to get out of a tough situation. Oh, we can just use a spell. Um, and at the same time, it's also a way to try to explain some things that happen that are out of the ordinary. Like, you know, there's an enemy charging up a hill and this fireball comes out of nowhere. Oh, a wizard must have thrown it instead of it being a giant, you know, pot that with flaming oil. Mm-hmm. Um, magic can offset the game very quickly. Yeah. And I know they've tried to do their best to balance out what spells you get and how soon you can get to those. And um, But once you have like a level six, level seven wizard in your group and he's able to throw lightning bolts and fireballs left and right, your, your fighters who have been pretty much taking the beating most of this time really don't have much to do anymore mm. because the wizard's just wiping the floor left and right. Um, yes, they can still get beat up really fast if you know, or the monster gets past your, your fighters. That really happens. So it kind of does overpower and counterbalance things really quickly. Um, I mean, we, try, we see that a lot. And I know in... the a lot of authors, you know, Brandon Sanderson does a good job at trying to counterbalance this. Um, there are other authors out there that do it as well. Um, you know, and I know a lot of people already know, not a big fan of the Harry Potter universe. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, I don't see how the Harry Potter universe could ever be made into an RPG system because the magic system is so 
convoluted and difficult. There's no way to define that into a set of rules of you do this and this. I mean, really, you know, the words you have a wand and if it's this type of wand, it does this or that. And it's like, I mean, we see in the, the upcoming movie, you know, the secrets of Dumbledore, you know, they're, they're handing a muggle a wand and it works. So mm. then what's the point of being a wizard or a witch now? If even um, a muggle can do it. What's, what's the actual thing that's being channeled? Is it the person or yeah. is it the tool? And yeah, it's a huge problem. And beyond that, to your point, I, there's a, like we've talked about leveling up before. Yeah. Right, this idea that you're building towards a thing, that you're working towards a thing, that certain paths will close off as you open others in a world where it's just a, a word and a you know a wave. Yeah, like potions in Harry Potter make a ton of sense to me. I'm like, sweet, there's skill here. There's a little bit of finesse and timing yeah. and your understanding and your ratios and things like that. That makes sense. Um, but eh. Right. But even that, like they brought in the luck potion later on. And there's, you know, that theory out there that is it really a luck potion or is it just a placebo? But like, we're going to presume <laughs> we're going to take uh, luck is word. a superpower domino. Thank you very much. Oh boy. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's, it's exactly, exactly what you're saying. And especially as we talk about using everything, like everything has levels, everything has a way to grow, everything has a way to get there. Yeah um when you're just when you just throw it out there it, it doesn't work it doesn't feel as good and even though it works from strictly a story a narrative perspective okay i can accept all of this trying to transition that to something where i the person i the player am now trying to use it even if the storytelling in that rpg would feel really good i don't think that the system would be satisfying if it was congruous with the books. Yeah. You know, I've, I've also been sitting here thinking about like, you know, how is it that magic works so almost effortlessly in video games versus RPGs? And I think it's because you can have the, the computational device do all the heavy lifting. And, mm-hmm. and in a video game, magic can have a, a, a multifaceted, set of rules that the that is completely abstracted away from the player the player can't see it. what the player knows is is it available to cast yet what's the cooldown time what's the charge time you know what's the damage over time that you have you can have spells i'm thinking specifically of like diablo 3 which i think handles this very well because you have mm-hmm. not just mana but you have different sources of fueling your abilities depending yeah. on the class type uh, there are even some class types that have dual fuels if you will and uh, you can you can also do things like you can hide, uh, or or rather embed. I should say you can embed things like cook time into animations, and you can add a little bit of oomph with with particle effects. And so you you have all these things that you can do in a video environment that make it so that a human does not have to calculate what's actually going on. The system will calculate everything. All the human has to do is get comfortable with the rhythm of timing. And then they can 
you know, kick this spell off, wait for its cooldown, do it again. In an RPG, in a tabletop RPG, you don't have that. So it's very easy. It, all players want to have like this beautiful, exotic magic system. But the price of having a beautiful, exotic magic system is that you begin to like geometrically increase its complexity. I've seen systems, uh, the, the systems that I think play best in terms of just like rapid fire, I'm, I'm rolling dice and I'm doing stuff in a tabletop RPG. The, the systems that I think work best are the ones where the ability is basically described, meaning that it's very foundational. It's very simple in its description. It has a base cost. And then if you want to magnify its impact, if you want to extend its duration, if you want to expand its reach, then you can pump more into it on this scale. I like systems where it's like, you can, you know, if you pay the cost and then you, it, it, you get the base and then you pay the cost again, it becomes double. You pay the cost again, it becomes quadruple because you're doubling the double. I like that because it means that like lower level characters, they usually don't have the ability to do that or they can do it once and then they're toast for a while or higher level characters can do this on a much grander scale and it represents, it represents their level. Well, just jumping back over to you, uh, with video games, I mean, even with video games, they only have so many spells they can use. Yeah, that's true. Whereas, you know, an RPG or something like that, we have this book of spells that you can use. and Some tome. Supplements, you know, and you can use all these different spells at any time, and there isn't really a lot of management there. I mean, that's where I think it it goes out of control. Um, You know, Dragonlance, I think, handled magic systems magic really well as a magic user you know if you were a dabbler in magic you only had access to so much what a certain level of magic i think it was like first or second level if you really wanted to use the grander more powerful magic spells you had to go take the test of high sorcery and it was dangerous so a lot of people didn't take that they didn't do that but even then if they passed the test and they had access to this they couldn't just cast spell after spell after spell. It wearied them. It made mm-hmm. it, you know, they mm-hmm. suffered from exhaustion. That was the counterbalance. You know, they could only cast the amount of spells or type of spells that they had enough strength for. And a lot of these uh, individuals, you know, they didn't always have the greatest of health because they were, you know, they weren't, they were frail. They weren't the warrior. They weren't strong and buff. And so they, there was that grand restriction that, counterbalance that you know you could have a guy maybe throw two or three fireballs and then he was just useless he needed to sleep for seven eight hours before he could cast another spell um you know we saw that quite often which i think was a great way of doing that you know you see harry potter running around just whipping his you know his wand away and he's just as happy and healthy and hearty as ever Mm um you know that's fun it's one of the things that i think Magic the Gathering actually does a very good job of, in some cases, abstracting um, while still keeping simple enough that, you know, you can do real computations. Now, that being said, this is a strategy game. We're not going for thematic flair here necessarily in all cases. Um, But the the fundamental premise behind the spell system, the entire game of magic, is that you are literally tapping into the ley lines of magic that cross the multiverse based on the lands that you have. Sometimes you'll be able to have creatures that may be able to produce mana or artifacts and things like that as well, but they're all fundamentally tapping into these powers that are crossing the universe, right? 
so you have the five pillars of magic and every spell has a mana cost um, that may require some amount of color uh, of a particular color to cast and some amount of generic energy right what that ends up simulating is that idea that like you can only do so much at a time and with that if you want access to really well-powered spells that are unique to this kind of magic you're probably going to have to pay many or you're gonna have to pay a lot more mana of that particular color or color combination we've also seen where this has been proven true because of where magic has failed in the past the sets that have cracked wide open that have driven players to the game in droves at first and then away from the game in droves as soon as it's there are the artifact heavy sets sets where you aren't required to pay a ton of complex mana costs um, where colors just kind of blur together um, or similarly um, environments where we have multiple sets that release next to each other where i've got three color lands that i can go and fetch with other cards from my deck and so my mana is always perfect there's never any risk there's never any reward that kind of limitation is really important so let's sum this up then uh because we've touched on like several points here let's see if we can help the crawlers figure out like how do you as how do you look at a magic system and determine if it is a uh, how good or uh, quote unquote bad it is like what are the symptoms of a good or a bad system let's do this rapid fire style daniel what should we be looking out in terms of a good or a bad system give us at least one of each well i mean a bad system definitely if it's overpowering the game you know if the magic system is got to the point where everyone you, you, the most of the people at the table is just sitting there twiddling their thumbs because the magic user is just obliterating everything i think that's a bad system or on the opposite hand it's just too difficult for your magic user to be able to do anything because you can't get the right spells or doesn't have the right power or whatever excellent elton yeah um building off of that and off of some of the other things that we're talking about i, I do think that there is a a there are two signs that i think you might have fun for a short period of time and then all of a sudden you're not going to anymore. The first is exactly what Dan said, where there's no reasonable scale. There's no reasonable relationship between what you're doing in the game and how it impacts the real world. And so you're going to get overpowered really quickly and there's going to hit a point where you just can't play the game unless you have some amount of magical power, whether that is through casting spells or a magic weapon or things like that. Um, that isn't to say that those things can't be fun and important, but if that's what you have to rely upon and there's no reason to even try to do anything else, it's gonna be a problem. On the opposite side of that coin, um, even if things are well-balanced, if the amount of crunch necessary to mm -hmm. get an output outscales the capacity of the system that you're using, meaning if, I am, if I'm writing a book and it takes me six paragraphs to explain how this spell functions, you've probably got a problem. Yeah. If I'm playing a tabletop game and everybody's got to pull out their graphing calculator it's, and can't just pre-write a note or pre-write a number and add their role to it, you've got a problem. Um, and all the way to computers, right? If your computer has to slow down and chunk <laughs> to figure out what's going on, or the number that spits out the other side makes so little contextual sense that, you, that the player is now incapable of understanding what their impact actually was on the game or the world, you've got a problem. And that for me, in all cases, boils down to limitations and impact, right? 
I want to see that what I does make a difference, that what I do makes a difference. And I want to know that the reason that it makes a difference is because it is exceptional to do that. Mr. Krebs? I agree with all those points. I would throw in there also, um, I think a solid playable at the table magic system is one where you can, where ease of execution at the table uh, is something that you can gauge and it's, and it's uh, the ease is high. The higher the, uh, you know, within a certain degree of, of acceptability, right? It needs to be executable at the table in a reasonable period of time. And it needs to have room for expansion and room for imagination. As your character levels up, that should have impact on your power. Uh, and you should be able to utilize the spells in creative ways because the number one tool at an RPG table is imagination and creativity, right? Like we need those to be recognized. And so being too hamstrung by a system, either by its complexity or by its limitations, uh, can be problematic. So look for those in your magic systems. Is it, is it easy to execute at the table? Is there room for expansion as my character grows? And uh, am I able to use my imagination to fuel this power and to make it something special? Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, with that, do we have a Gamer Forge this week? I do. I do. Ooh, um, this nice. one actually is is coming from Reddit. Uh, I participated in a couple of different threads in which I helped answer different questions. And there was one that uh, stood out to me. How to maintain momentum after my original idea is derailed. <laughs> um, this, uh, this post is a little bit long, so I'm going to just try to summarize it really quick. But in essence... Um, this person finished a six month uh, campaign in which they took players from level one to eight and he's been they've been reflecting on it saying that they did the first seven sessions fine didn't hand wave anything had all the stat, box, stat blocks and encounters pre-planned and the world mapped out um, everybody seemed to be enjoying it and then they reached the main city of that campaign allied with the big bad evil guy's lieutenant without even knowing who the big bad was mm changed their alignments to evil since none of their characters cared about others in the game anyway. And what ended up following was 20 something sessions of political drama, uh, evil political drama. He said, they said game of Thrones. they identified every single hole they'd left in the lore that they could exploit and then used them to take over the entire world and get the big bad evil guy to let them leave in return. It was still fun, but the instant the first assassination happened, they say, I dropped all of my careful lore building and descriptions that people were having fun with out of a lack for how I was going to do any of it. The mm. rapid expansion in scope was too much for me and I lost my momentum leading to an overall worse experience. How can I prevent this from happening in the future? There's oh, a man. lot to unpack there. There's, There's a, a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, I want to hear what your guys' thoughts are first and then I'll jump in. Uh, Mr. Dan, it looks like you are poised and ready to strike. No, I'm thinking. So we can go. Oh, okay. Okay. So immediately. There's, there's so much there. there yeah. There's a ton. But you know what? Immediately, I we, we've talked about this in the in the alloys of law, right? Like the, the rules of, of RPGs. Uh, this is a classic example of the players playing against the GM and the GM trying to stop the players. Your number one problem here isn't scope. Your number one problem is that you and your players are not working together. Uh, and, and I, I realized that's kind of a harsh come down, especially because like, I mean, you, you went through like 30 sessions, it sounded like 27 sessions. Right. Uh, but, but, uh, 
why were the players allowed to switch their alignments to evil? How close were they to evil to begin with? Were they on the good side? Then they decided to flip to evil because it was mechanically advantageous. Uh, and if they wanted to run an evil campaign, why not run with that and make that your new scope? It doesn't have to be about trying to get them back into the, onto the path you had them on in the first place. And if they're just gaming the system, they're being bad players. It shouldn't be about gaming the system. It should be using the system as an engine to tell a compelling story. Their characters should have backstories. What is their character's motivation? Why did they make this flip in the first place? Why are they interested in, like, like there are so many questions to be answered here by both the, the DM and the players. So I think that this is a classic example of DMs and players not working together to tell a cohesive story. Interesting. No, I've got I, more I, thoughts I, on that, but I want to hear Dan's yeah. first. No, I agree. So this is this is kind of as I'm unfolding this, and Krebs kind of helps solidify it. Is it is this is where the the DM or game master is so set in stone with the path before him that he is not willing to be flexible in the story. You know, when we, when I sit down, I have an idea, but that's an idea. The players are truly the ones telling the story as they're doing it. I'm just the one narrating it. Now, these players have fallen from grace. There's, go with it. I mean, that is a great uh, avenue for a story. We've seen it time and time again, where the hero has set out on his journey and made a mistake and fallen from grace. I mean, Heck, the, the, the prequels were all about that with Anakin. I mean, and we got one of the greatest villains ever with Darth Vader because of that. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that the villain can't be redeemed and can't come back. And maybe that's where these players need to go is fall from grace, become evil. Be, you know, and, and again, they're, they're, they're still believing they're the hero of the story even though they've become the villain of the world. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that's the story you run with. And then they start realizing that countries and nations are now building armies against them. Why is that? And maybe they come back from that or they choose to remain in this stuck place of we're the heroes. They're now they're the enemies. They're believing all the propaganda and then they go charging after them. Why not run with that story? That's clearly what the players want. Now, could it be that the players are gaming the system and trying to be douchebags? Maybe it, it is possible. <laughs> I have had some players where they have been, but it's We've generally all been there. And it's not generally the whole group. If the whole group is going that way, I say run with it, play with it. You know, yes, you had this grand idea, but the nice thing about role playing is you can tweak that and you can adjust to that group and make it a better story because of that. What I like about that is, you know, if he had planned that there was this big bad, he probably planned that there were some big goods too. If yeah. your players have, have flipped the script, then do that, flip your script too. Now all the good guys you have are the opponents and maybe it's destined that they <laughs> win. I don't know, but use this to your advantage and tell a different story. Well, I mean, what would it have been like if, you know, the the that you know bilbo had gone out and he became bad and he turned all the dwarves bad and then gandalf became bad and then they get to see smog and then you know bilbo turns smog and now smog's his personal you know drake that he flies around and then he goes after sauron you know i mean yes that's not the story we got 
but what would that story have looked like had you know because the ring started manipulating bilbo and twisting him around earlier and quicker and but he didn't go he didn't turn into to golem he became more like sauron but bilbo sized that would have been a cool story that could have been something amazing and then he starts taking out the other cities and you know and he's got a drake for crying out loud now and who's going to stand up against him and smog or or even having gandalf at his side i mean it would have been interesting or maybe gandalf would have fled and then had to get another fellowship to, to attack there's so many possibilities yeah now gentlemen i agree with most of your points but i do want to address a couple of small things that i actually disagree with or at least Go I think could be presented a little bit better um so glad yes. he's I, disagreeing with me <laughs> it's, it's okay uh I, I i i absolutely agree that when your players choose a different path than the one that you've set out okay that is a great opportunity to elevate your game all that preparation doesn't need to go away um if there's a big bad evil guy who is big bad and evil there's probably people who want to overthrow him there's probably other nations that are paying attention and those are all great things to have happen. Um, the other direction that a lot of uh, GMs can accidentally fall into is still trying to pit the players against the BBEG and mm -hmm. it was part of his plan all along, <laughs> right? Yep. It's one of the reasons that Palpatine's rebirth in nine felt so cheap and cheated. Um, but, but beyond that, it, leads into very tenuous difficult territory especially if you are trying to teach a moral lesson by fighting evil with evil you just end up with whoever's the most evil at the end it doesn't usually turn players back um but being able to highlight the outcome and lean into your players and if they really want to go on to dominate the whole world sweet let them have their fun, end the story before the consequences have to come, and you're going to walk away with a really satisfying campaign. Mm. I particularly love the, the title of this, talking about like, you know, when my players derail, how do I not lose momentum? If a train goes off the tracks, it's still got momentum. Okay? <laughs> That's true. That's true. It, it hitting the ground, it hitting the trees, it hitting everything else, those things pushing back is what makes the train lose its momentum. But if instead you could magically somehow put down a new track underneath the train that's just jumped off of this one, that's great. The second point that, um, that I wanna make sure to, to address here is if you are presenting your players with a choice that you don't want them to make, it's not a choice and you shouldn't present it. Truth. Be very, very careful about that. And I'm not saying this to shame because it's a very, very common issue that people fall into is, they say, you know, here's your two options and one's clearly good and one's clearly evil. And I've got all these bright rewards over here to the offside. When I was running Dimensions um, in the, the demo uh, level, one of the demo levels that I put together, there comes this point where you've seen the pattern of the bad guy the whole time, green glowing eyes and monsters coming out and being possessed, right? And they come to this fork in the road. And on one path, it's the picturesque, beautiful, forest meadow butterflies flying through and on the other side it's deep and dark and depressing and everything's falling apart and this little lamb with green glowing eyes is telling you oh just come with me like it's easy go on, <laughs> go on down the green path right and and it it took me shockingly 
it took me by surprise the first time that players chose the opposite direction to the one that I told them to go down. And good news is, is that I was prepared to improv in that moment as we were doing early play testing, but it also illustrated a very important point, which is that players aren't, they aren't there to run down the known stories. They're there to make a story with you. And that means that if there's a path that they have tried a million times before, even if it's in another game with another GM, something that you're completely unaware of, they're gonna choose the new path. They're gonna to try to do something different. If you aren't presenting a meaningful choice, don't present it. And much better go back and figure out what that meaningful choice would be. Yeah, Thing the one. third that ties into that. I don't think that these are bad players. I don't think that these are bad players for trying to game the system and wring every single little advantage that they can to find the loopholes, to find the things that are broken, to have stupid spell slots and turn everybody into Tyrannosaurus Rexes. Yes, that's a thing that you can do at level seven as a druid. <laughs> um, like these, these things exist. And in fact, it's a good thing for players to go and find how to do this. If that's the power fantasy that they want to live as part of that story, you have actually done a good thing as a GM. You have given them the tools to go and live that fantasy, to go and be an active part of the story. And so even though it may feel like they're taking advantage of you, they, they are. They are taking advantage of the tools that you've given them. And that means that you've given them something good. So this is not, in my opinion, a situation of the players versus the DM. This is a situation of the, the DM versus the players. Pull it back. And that doesn't make you a bad DM or GM either. But what it does mean is recognize you have done something exceptional. You have birthed the golden egg, right? Like this is something that nobody was expecting. This is a great opportunity. And that's where that, that Electrum mm. rule comes in, right? Like use everything as a chance to elevate your game. Elevate your game, elevate your game. When the players do something unexpected, at the end of the session, it's okay to ask the question, why did you do that? Like, that was really cool, but why did you do that? and let them tell you what it is that they were looking forward to. And if there really is something that either because you don't have the tools yet to handle it, or that you don't feel comfortable with the content, or you don't have the preparation enabled, that's something that needs to be established in session zero. If you don't want your players to turn evil, first, that's something that should have been addressed before the <laughs> campaign started. Second, you shouldn't be presenting them a choice that enables them to turn evil. Um, if they act evil and in evil ways and you've set that clear expectation then it doesn't feel like the story's just coming down on them and you're pulling the rug out from underneath them when you summon the townspeople and kill all the players in the first five minutes but be conscious that it isn't always just players versus the gm you've got to be careful not to make it gm versus the players yes. and recognize that when they are doing something outside of the box and exceptional it is because you have put it there and that is a credit to you not a discredit so um, we don't have a lot of time to keep talking more about this, but I could do a whole episode on just this. So maybe at some <laughs> point we will. I think uh, it's been a great episode today, guys. And Dan, you should probably sum us up and take us out. Yeah, no. Uh, remember, just remember when you're, you're running a game as a GM or a DM, whichever term you want to use, it's a collective story. It's not your story the players are adding to that story just as much as you are. You're just the narrator. You're there just to have fun like they are. And if you have to rule it with a, an iron fist, no one's going to enjoy that. Um, and not only that, 
magic. Magic can be fun. Magic can be annoying. But just remember, as long as there is some form of balance in both, you know, GMing and magic, you will find some harmony and have an amazing experience. So with that said, we'll catch you next time. Dungeon Crawlers, whether it's a magic spell or big bad evil guy, tell your story, whatever may come. And whether your magic system is alakamazing or abracacrapis, always remember to be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you always.